Hello, and welcome to Queer as Fiction, where we talk about queer historical media. I'm Jason. I'm Alice. And I'm Eli. And today we're talking about the 14th century Middle English chivalric romance of unknown authorship and unknown title, commonly referred to as Gawain and the Green Knight. Before we get started, I'd like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung people of the Kulin Nation as the traditional owners of the land on which we record this podcast, and pay respects to their elders past and present. We recognise them as the custodians of an oral history tradition far older than this podcast. We also have some content warnings for this episode, fictional non-permanent beheading, and mild sexual content. That's it, but if that does sound like something you don't want to listen to, please feel free to check out one of our other episodes. So let's talk about Gawain and the Green Knight, which I'm going to refer to as Gawain for the purposes of this episode, because Seggek, or Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, (laughs) as it is referred to in academia, is a little bit too unwieldy for an entire podcast episode. If I call it Seggek, is that allowed? (laughs) That is is acceptable, yes. Jason can't believe what we say. (laughs) Seggek. Like, I genuinely don't know why they don't call it the Green Knight. Like, Gawain is in other stories, but like, as far as I can tell, the Green Knight isn't really, so like... (laughs) <laughs> yeah okay it seems to me like there's an obvious title yeah that would that... specify this story and this story only and it's easy to say yeah and would abbreviate into tgk which you know is a pretty yeah. reasonable abbreviation Tegek. yeah <laughs> <laughs> but wait didn't you say you're gonna call it gawain i'm gonna call it gawain because obviously in this episode we know what we're talking about and gawain <laughs> is even easier to say okay that makes sense <laughs> i do want to give a disclaimer that i wouldn't usually in these episodes which is that i am unlike the other members of this podcast not a trained historian in, in any way, and given the timescale in which we make these episodes, could not possibly become something even approaching an expert on 14th century England in time to record this. I've done a lot of reading on this specific story, and that reading includes a lot of context about the society in which it was written, but I will inevitably say something that doesn't make sense in this episode at some point, and to our Middle English nerd listeners, I want to preemptively <laughs> apologise. <laughs> This story is one of four written in the 14th century, collected in a British library manuscript referred to as Cotton Nero A.X. <laughs> Catchy. Catchy. <laughs> yeah, so, um... Sir Gawain and the Green Knight and Sir Gek not sounding too bad now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it comes from uh, Sir Robert Bruce Cotton, uh, who organised his bookcases by the bust of a figure from classical antiquity that they were placed beneath. Oh, that's pretty cool. Then the shelves by letter, then the position on the shelf by Roman numeral. So Nero, the first shelf, the tenth position. Okay, no, that's cool. Cool. We'll yeah. give him that. And the British Library still refers to them in that way, even though obviously they're not like stored like that anymore. Were they classical busts, did you say? Yeah, it was referred to as figures from antiquity. I'm not sure if they were all exactly classical, uh-huh. but I assume yeah. those terms are relatively interchangeable. Yeah, I'm just wondering about the order of the busts, right? Because like that's that's the only kind of random element at play here. So if they were all Roman emperors, obviously they could be chronological. Oh, yeah. But presumably they're not. So are they still chronological? Are they just like in order of favoritism? I would love to know. <laughs> Is he like Greeks over here, Romans over here, and that's like different like subjects within his library in some way? I cannot answer that question, <laughs> although the Wikipedia article on this probably can. Right, okay. um, the one thing I do remember is that one of the busts was over the door, and so it had many less uh, manuscripts in its bookcase. Oh yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> I was picturing like balanced on top of the door as some kind of booby trap, but that's obviously not what you meant. <laughs> no, I, I don't know exactly how to visualize this. <laughs> was it Athena? Did it have a raven on it? <laughs> <laughs> All four stories are written in a Middle English dialect localised to the English Midlands, specifically somewhere between North Staffordshire and South Lancashire, and three things are generally assumed based on the content of the four stories, thematic and linguistic similarities, and other contextual clues. One, the same person authored all four stories. Two, the author and the scribe of this manuscript are one and the same. And three, the author was a man. Are you going to tell us why we think those things, or are we just going to accept those and move on? Well, what I was going to say is, uh, rather than like go into all three of those points extensively, what I was going to say was that the first two points are relatively unimportant to our analysis of the text here. Mm-hmm. Um, the third is more relevant, and given that the author could not only have been not a man, they could have also been multiple people, especially when you account for the fact it could have been a different person writing it as opposed to transcribing it into this manuscript, I'll be using they, them to refer to the author when relevant. Because, yeah, we, there are a bunch of theories, but nothing that's even close to widely accepted in the academia mm-hmm. um, as okay. to who authored these stories. People also sometimes use they then pronouns to refer to Homer or other such authors. And I think it's actually one of the instances in which it being both gender neutral and a plural is really cool 
Mm. ambiguity yeah there where it's like we don't know their gender or how many they are (laughs) Uh, so that's fun yeah yeah so going back to these four uh stories which are in mr cotton's library Mm -hmm. do we have like multiple copies of gawain green knight or is it just like this is the original we have and everything else is we know is taken from that original like what's going on here i think yeah this is the copy Okay. That we have. Interesting. Interesting. Um, and yeah, it was written sometime, uh, I think it's around from anywhere between about 1350 through to like 1390 or so. And this copy is from that time? Yeah. Oh, that's really cool. I'm just so used to like the ancient world where it's like, these are the five copies we have. They're from like 500 to 2000 years after this was written. Have fun, guys. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and they, like, don't match up, and you have a lot of, like, debates around it's this word and this copy, but this word and this copy, when did it change? So I guess we won't have to do that today. From the notes in my edition, at least, there are still ones where it's, like, the manuscript is corrupt in this line, so there's debate about particular lines and stuff. I don't know if we'll get into it, but, you know. Okay, okay. So it's not a perfect copy that we can fully read. Even in this easiest of manuscript traditions, it is not truly easy. Probably like a moth ate some or something. Yeah. 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 No, there is definitely a little bit of that. And, yeah, the most prominent theory of authorship, that the author was a John Massey, uh, based on notes in the margins of a story theorized by some to be by the same author as the Gawain poet, Sir Erkenwald, is not widely subscribed to by modern scholars. So it might be a guy called John, but maybe nah. Yeah. Okay. I feel like even if we didn't have a particular John to point to, just saying it might have been written by a guy called John, it's like, yeah, I mean, I guess that's as well as <laughs> any mean, other theory. Yeah, exactly. I think literally in the list of theories, there were like at least three Johns. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Yes. I mean, like, more likely to have been written by a man than a woman based on the fact that most writing that survives to us is written by men. Most men are called John in England. Like, <laughs> <laughs> So of the other three stories, Pearl is the other relatively famous one, uh, sometimes described as expressing grief over the loss of a two-year-old child, other times in more wholly symbolic terms as coming to terms with the loss of innocence or another kind of spiritual journey. Mm -hmm. The other two are Purity, which is a homiletic poem stressing the necessity for purity in approaching the presence of God, dealing with the fall of Lucifer, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, and other such tales, and Patience, which is largely a retelling of the story of Jonah and the Whale. The stories are contemporary with the works of, among others, Geoffrey Chaucer, uh, author of The Canterbury Tales, and the alliterative verse utilised in the story is seen as part of a general revival of such a form around this time. I did enjoy that a lot in reading it. Mm-hmm. I don't know about the translations you guys read, but like my translation really stuck to the alliteration that oh, was yeah, in the original, same, same and I liked that. Yeah. Mm, yeah, so that's something that is kind of a thing with translations of this is how much you stick to the alliterative verse versus how much you stick to like translating the literal words mm. that the poet mm. the original poet used yeah and the first modern english translation of the work was not completed until 1898 when uh jesse weston published her version which i read and was quite entertained by uh but which is generally not considered the most accurate translation in terms of either the poetic meter or like purely as a translation which as we just mentioned are often kind of intention when it comes to presenting the work in modern english mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so getting into the story itself i'll talk very briefly about the structure uh then we'll talk a little bit about the arthurian setting and uh then give a plot summary As I just mentioned, the story heavily utilises alliterative verse, that is to say it primarily utilises alliteration rather than rhyme to indicate the underlying metrical structure. Uh, It's also notable for using a bob and wheel structure, which I mention mostly because bob and wheel is a delightful (laughs) term. I assume bob and wheel, and like, I don't know anything here, I assume bob and wheel to describe the structure of a poem is pulling on some physical thing in the real world, which is called bob and wheel? (laughs) My guess? I... My suspicion, and um, I guess this is an instance where I'm sure someone in our listenership will know the answer to this, is that we're talking about, like, the wheel of a wagon. Yeah. And I reckon the bob is, like, the little bit in the middle of the wagon. Well, that makes sense. Like, the middle of the wheel, I should say. Because when you're using a sewing machine, like, the bobbin is, like, the little thing that spins around that you wrap your thread around. So, like, I'm just making things up, but maybe that's connected. (laughs) I feel like that's pretty likely to be connected. Maybe yeah. that's even specifically what it's referring to. Maybe. So this form is characterized by the use of a very short line, often two assertive syllables, known as the bob, and a small section at the end of each stanza which returns the prose to a particular rhythm, the wheel. I'm going to give a brief example from the end of the first section of Gawain, and please excuse my Middle English pronunciation. I'm mostly doing this for your entertainment. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for your honesty. <laughs> 
Did you look up the pronunciation guide or is this just for laughs? Uh, entirely for laughs. Okay. Okay. Cool, cool, cool. I guess we could look up like someone who knows a lot about this. Yeah, yeah. like my English teacher at high school um, knew how to properly read Middle English mm-hmm. and so like read some of the Canterbury Tales to us. Oh, um, cool. that's really cool. Although the Canterbury Tales, uh, because Chaucer was based in London, I believe, mm-hmm. uh, is much closer to modern English than Gawain. Yeah, oh, okay. Makes sense. This is a much more rural tale in terms of mm. where it was mm. written. This is quite refreshing in terms of pronouncing stuff, because like, if we pronounce old-timey English bad, who's going to get mad at us? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's our language. We'll do what we want with it. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, so this is towards the end of the first stanza, just before the bob starts. And fur over the French flod Felix Brutus, on many bonks full broad Bretagne he sets. With win, this is the bob. Where were and rake and wonder, by size has want therein, and oft both blies and blunder, full skeet has skyfed sin. This is the wheel. Bonk. <laughs> <laughs> That's what we take away from that. It is quite fun to listen to, because, like, it sounds like English. Like, like yeah, I recognise the rhythm of these words. I, like, feel like I should know what's happening, but also I just don't. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it, it's not like a fully foreign language yeah. where sometimes, like, if you listen to a foreign language sentence for the first time, you're often like, I have literally no idea what's going on. I can't I don't know where the, like, gaps in the between the words are. Yeah. Stuff. Yeah, yeah. Uh, should we read that in modern <laughs> English, just for a comparison? <laughs> Probably, yeah. Yeah, I have, sure. like, copies over here. Yeah, 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 yeah. Sure, let's um get out Gawain. So in the translation, which I've got in front of me, uh, it reads, And over the English Channel, Felix Brutus, brave on banks and braes, founds and fathers Britain, in splendour, where, mixed in the misty air, war and woe and wonder, oft times have dwelt and where is mingled rain and thunder. So I have a different translation here, and I literally like don't know which bit you were reading. <laughs> so I think I should read mine out, just for comparison's sake. Okay. Sure. So mine reads, And far over the French flood, Felix Brutus, on many spacious slopes set Britain with joy and grace, where war and feud and wonder have ruled the realm of space, and after bliss and blunder by turn to run their race. Yeah. That's yeah. a different thing entirely. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, yeah, definitely. And that's, I feel, pretty illustrative of the kinds of differences you see in translation. Um, I know, like, I read an article... Uh, from like 1930, I think, um, at which point we had, I think, three uh, like prominent translations that had been made, mm. um, one of which was Jesse Weston's, and I can't remember what the other two were. Uh, yeah, the guy was basically reviewing them against each other and was being like, mm. yeah, so this one, you know, really, really likes the alliteration, but like, it's really losing a lot of the meaning and like, mm. yeah, it is. there is a bit of tension there. Mm-hmm. I think it's like very apparent, even in the fact that we had like, it's rhyming and the word is fine with his wonder. And the version you read out, Jason, rhymed wonder with thunder. And the version you read out rhymed wonder with blunder. Like, clearly they've gone in for the rhyme and therefore that's really affected how the whole thing is structured and what they even decide to talk about, basically. Yeah, yeah. So thankfully that's not going to make a huge difference to our interpretation of the queerness. I imagine if you were writing like a a full PhD on this that you would get really into the weeds on that. Um, (laughs) We don't have to do that today. We don't have to do that today. I think it is worth mentioning, though, that the three of us did read different editions of this, Mm -hmm. and I don't know, that could end up being funny. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. I think so too. Um, So in terms of the setting, Gawain centres on Arthurian myth, developed in the 12th century, with all the chivalry and courtly themes that entails. Uh, It draws heavily on folklore tropes, I'll get into one example of that in just a moment, but generally, the figure of the Green Knight and other supernatural elements disconnected from Christianity can be seen to come from folk tales. The Arthurian setting was well established by the time the Gawain poet was writing, with Middle English scholar Mary Boroff putting it as follows. The ideal of knightly conduct of courage, loyalty, and courtesy against which the poem's action is to be viewed was a long-established, though still viable, ideal, which had become subject to superficial acceptance and even satirical treatment. It may legitimately be compared to the Boy Scout ideal of conduct, similarly viable and similarly subject to ridicule in our century. That was an interesting comparison. I liked that. Yeah, I thought that was really interesting and really, like, gave me a good grounding for this and how Mm. to feel about how, you know, Arthur was felt about. Like, Arthur is basically just Superman, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Like, he's a Boy Scout. He's It's kind of like, ah, like, sincere, but also, like, you know... Maybe a little worthy of ridicule at this stage. 
So that's the structure and the setting. Uh, as we get to the plot, this is where I will mention David Lowry's The Green Knight, the 2021 film adaptation, which was the impetus for making this episode. Uh, unfortunately, the film, which I have heard is excellent, does not yet have an Australian release date, so this episode will not be discussing it as an adaptation. But given I expect many listeners to have seen the film without having read the text, I'm going to give a brief plot summary of the latter. I'll also give some analysis throughout for those who have read the story, as well as to supplement the following discussion, which will, as per the name of the show, centre on the story's queerness. <laughs> As King Arthur's court celebrates New Year's Eve, with the knights and ladies engaging in what is likely a kissing game, a reflection of what will happen later. I didn't realise that was what was happening. Yeah, it's not 100% clear, but it uh, they talk about how the women have lost but are kind of happy about it, and the men are, like, you know, engaged in competition, and from context, um, it's pretty clear that that's some kind of kissing game. Okay. What are we, 12? <laughs> <laughs> I, I was just thinking, like, the only kissing game that I'm like, actually, no, that's not true. I guess Kiss Chasey was the first thing that came into my mind. <laughs> yeah, and I think that's kind of indicative of, like, the sort of Edenic kind of nature of Arthur's Court. I have uh, no idea what word you just said. Uh, Edenic, like Garden of Eden. Oh, right. I don't know that could be an adjective. <laughs> <laughs> The king is restless and asks to hear of exciting adventure. Uh, suddenly, a gigantic figure, entirely green in appearance and clothing and riding a similarly attired horse, appears in the hall. He wears no armour, but bears an axe and a holly branch. The greenness, which I know you're all very excited about. <laughs> I was just thinking, you didn't mention that the horse, not only attired in green, I think also is green. That's true. Key information. And the greenness, we will deal with later. But okay. uh, that's a whole <laughs> part about the Green Knight that we'll get to. But the axe may be an indication of a relationship with the Vikings who raided England during the times depicted in Arthurian legend. Hmm. And the holly branch may be a specific regional representation of peace. It's not generally associated with peace, but it clearly is in the story. Um, in that the Green Knight points to it and is sort of like, see, I come in peace, I bear a holly branch. Yeah, oh, yeah. pretty clear. I thought that was just kind of like linked to the fact that holly represents Christmas and it's like, you know... Christmas is about peace. I've got some holly. That was my understanding of that. Yeah, maybe. That's that's also, a, I feel, probably a valid interpretation. But I mm. think there are some references to holly being a representation of peace in that specific region. Ah, okay. Yeah. Um, so this fits with the general duality of the Green Knight. On the one hand, he represents violence, and on the outsider, and on the other hand, peace and familiarity. Uh, anyway, the Green Knight considers the Knights of Arthur's Court too weak to take him in any contest of arms but insists he has come for a friendly Christmas game. Someone is to strike him once with his axe on the condition that the Green Knight may return the blow in a year and a day. This is known as the Beheading Game, and first appears in 8th century Irish folklore with Fled Brickrun, or Brickru's Feast, later becoming a trope of medieval romance. So this isn't just a Green Knight thing, this is just a thing that people, not people did I guess, but people told <laughs> stories about. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a thing that's in other stories. Okay, um, it's in American Gods. Oh yeah, it is an American gods. That's true. I didn't Correct. Think of that. Yeah, it ends the same. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Sir Gawain, or Gavin, as he would be known in modern English. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Gav. His name sounds so Australian, even though it's not at all a normal Australian <laughs> modern name, because it's somehow both Gavin and Wayne, <laughs> which is true. kind of the ultimate Australian man's name. <laughs> <laughs> So Gavin, who is Arthur's nephew and the youngest of his knights, asks for the honour of accepting the challenge, with some self-deprecation about how his death would be of no great harm to the court. Sorry, but can I just ask, are we going to have, like, modern adaptations of all their names? Because I love this. Oh, no, I'm calling him Gawain for the rest. Oh, okay, okay. I just wanted to in that one yep. instance. Damn it. I'm calling him Gavin. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Gawain steps up and beheads the knight, who promptly picks up his severed head, bids the court adieu, and departs, his bleeding head reminding the court, and in particular Queen Guinevere, that Gawain should meet him at the Green Chapel a year and a day hence. The passing of the seasons follows, in a passage that is written about glowingly by many scholars of the text, and as the date approaches, Gawain must leave the court to go on his quest. Many adventures and battles are alluded to, but not described, so anything that happens here in the film is not found in the original text, although I would wager they drew from other Gawain myths that exist. Mm -hmm. Maybe, I don't know. Yeah, it'd be great if we could have had an opportunity to find out before recording this. <laughs> Thanks, COVID. <laughs> Eventually, as the terrain and weather alike grow grim and cold, Gawain stumbles across a splendid castle, an oasis in the frosty north where he meets the handsome lord and beautiful lady of the castle, who are pleased to have such a renowned guest. There's also an old and ugly lady who is treated with honour by all. This is, spoilers, Morgan Le Fay, 
renowned sorceress of Arthurian legend, and she who was, in some versions of Arthurian myth, including very likely the one in which this story takes place, exiled from the court after revealing Guinevere's adultery with Lancelot to King Arthur. Ah, oh, I see. <laughs> now, we don't have time to unpack all of that right now, <laughs> but we will get to it later. I was just like, this old lady is here, but she's Morgan Le Fay, but I just really don't get why. <laughs> <laughs> Gawain is nervous to stay too long at the castle, his deadline to find the Green Chapel just a few days away. But the Lord laughs when Gawain informs him of his quest, as the Green Chapel is a location known to him just a few miles from the castle, and proposes Gawain stay and rest until he is required there. Gawain agrees, and the Lord proposes a bargain, our second game. He will go (laughs) hunting each day, and Gawain will stay in the castle. Anything which the Lord catches, he will give to Gawain, on the condition that Gawain give him anything he obtains throughout the day. Gawain accepts, because obviously this is a great deal. Yeah, Gawain just has to stay home and do nothing. There's some very good descriptions of him just being cozy in bed. Yeah, it's delightful. He's specifically like, you have to sleep in. He is, and we'll talk about that later. Thus proceeds a series of three hunts, interspersed and juxtaposed with scenes of Gawain at the castle, where he is very restful, except for the moments where the lady attempts to seduce him. On the first attempt, during a hunt for deer, Gawain eventually agrees to accept a single kiss from the lady, which he gives to the lord upon his return, without explanation of its origins. On the second day, the lord hunts a boar, and Gawain provides two kisses, which he reluctantly accepts from the lady. Finally, on the third day, the lord hunts a wily fox, and Gawain accepts not only three kisses, but also a girdle of green and gold silk from the lady, which she promises will protect the wearer from harm. He gives the lord the kisses, but not the girdle, hoping it will protect him from his impending fate at the hands of the green knight. Departing the castle, Gawain seeks the green chapel, an earthen mound of eerie atmosphere with caverns and strange sounds. He finds the Green Knight, sharpening an axe, and offers his neck. At the first swing, Gawain flinches, drawing derision from the knight. At the second, Gawain does not flinch, but the knight withholds force from the blow, explaining that he was testing Gawain's nerve. Finally, on the third swing, the knight deals a slight nick to Gawain's neck. The game is over, and Gawain arms himself, ready for a duel. The Green Knight, however, just laughs, and reveals himself as Lord Bertilak de Hauptbesert of the very castle Gawain had just stayed at. Gavin and Bert. <laughs> I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> <laughs> he was transformed into the Green Knight by the magics of Morgan Le Fay, who did so in order to test the metal of Arthur's knights and potentially frighten Queen Guinevere to death. The nick is explained as a result of his mild cheating in the game of exchange vis-a-vis the girl. Gawain is ashamed of his deceit, but the Green Knight laughs and declares him noble. The two part on good terms, and Gawain returns to Camelot wearing the girdle as a token of his failure to keep to the terms of the game. The knights of Arthur's court absolve him, and decide that henceforth each will wear a green girdle in recognition of Gawain's adventure, and as a reminder, to be always truthful. So that's the end of the story, and uh, now we get into the analysis part of this episode, of which my first question is, so is it gay? Well, (laughs) two men kiss repeatedly, so yes. (laughs) Good, thank you, you can go home now. (laughs) Yeah, we're done. That's that's the episode. (laughs) Alright. More sincerely, queer interpretations of the text are, as you might expect, pretty numerous. Uh, We're going to start by talking about the Green Knight himself, expand outwards to the dual scenes of hunting and seduction, and finally talk a little bit about Morgan Le Fay and Queen Guinevere and their presence in the story. So, the Green Knight, and the question we've all been waiting for, (laughs) why is he green? Please tell us. Why is he green? (laughs) (laughs) In his translation, Brian Stone speaks of the greenness as evidence of several things. The wild and the natural, which is an obvious association Mm -hmm. um, with figures like the Green Man, Death, magic, and tricks, which have long been associated with the color green. You know, for most people, I feel in modern audiences, Loki is a really obvious example of that. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. But like how witches are green, I guess. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that as well. And perhaps most interestingly, truth. As he points to the Castle of Perseverance, a morality play from the end of the 14th century in which truth, one of the four daughters of God, is clad in sad green. Okay. Whilst that's probably not really a modern association, it may have been at the time. Uh, The Green Knight has been interpreted as symbolising a god of spring, heralding the end of winter, uh, a solar god with his hunts representing the travels of the sun each day, uh, and death itself, the executioner of mankind. Uh, There's also more like Christianity-focused references to him, especially given the uh, very heavily religious focus of the other poems in the manuscript. Mm -hmm. Yeah. which there have been references to him as both the devil and Jesus, so... So which is it, guys? <laughs> you know, there's a lot going on here. Okay. 
Gail Ashton, in her piece The Perverse Dynamics of Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, focuses in on the duality of his title. He's green, and that makes him the outside, a monster, a threat to their social order, but he's also knight, inside, a part of that very social order. This makes his presence a perversion of the norm rather than a simple threat to be vanquished. Mm-hmm. So whilst he is monstrous, he's not a monster, mm-hmm. is basically mm-hmm. what she's saying. Like a gay. Is that the thought? <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. Uh-huh. <laughs> I see that you've encountered this argument before. No, I just seemed where we were. <laughs> Duality is, in my humble opinion, a pretty big part of the story. The two courts of Camelot and Hout Desert, the hunting and seduction scenes, the game of beheading and the game of winning, and the not actually titular Green Knight himself, who has his two personas. As the Green Knight, Bertilak's body is inflated in size, hypermasculine but denuded of armour. Ashton argues that the masculine form in the social body of romance is a fully armoured one, and with long mm-hmm. hair, which he sweeps back to reveal his flesh to be beheaded, making a somewhat feminine form. So that, like, they also talk about like how he's got like weirdly tiny hips. Yeah, weirdly tiny yeah, hips. Yeah, he does. That That's was true. a weird sentence. Yeah. <laughs> So when you mentioned that his long hair, like, sweeping back is feminine, did, like, men have short hair generally at this time? That was, that one point I was a little bit questionable on because I didn't, like, you know, then go and do a ton of research about exactly what the hair norms were at the time. Yeah. But I guess it's not so much the case of, like, I guess in Ashton's mind where she's talking about the masculine form as being an armoured one. Obviously, Mm. if you're armoured and wearing a helm your hair is not really a visible presence. Oh, yeah, so it doesn't actually matter the length of your hair because your hair is covered up anyway. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah. That makes sense. And I guess, like, sweeping your long hair off your neck is a feminine action, even if men had long hair, perhaps. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. So she says, No wonder he is double, man and giant, masculine and feminine, the host Bertilak and the challenge of the Green Knight, guardian of security and yet its attacker. Richard Zykovitz, in his piece, Befriending the Medieval Queer, a pedagogy for <laughs> literature classes, a great title. Yes, I would like to befriend the medieval queer. <laughs> well, you can read this book to find out how. Okay, good. Thank you. So he refers to how, in contrast to the monstrous queerness of Grendel in Beowulf, the Green Knight's otherness fascinates and, I suggest, attracts the narrator, whose gaze lingers over the physical form of the knight. He, by which Zakovitz means the narrator, observes that from broad neck to buttocks so bulky and thick... <laughs> I don't think the translation I read referred to is thick buttocks. <laughs> and his loins and legs so long and so great, half a giant on earth I hold him to be. I'm just going to open up this section in the poem. Just out of curiosity. <laughs> what line is this? Bear Do with me for a moment. I want to see if mine okay, says I'll tell you if I find the, the I line don't number. believe that if it had said he thick, I wouldn't have written that down. <laughs> so yeah, this one just says, for back and breast, full muscled was his body. He does. Oh, okay. So, so mine says from throat to thigh, he was so thick set and square because this <laughs> translator's a coward. <laughs> <laughs> but his sides and waist were worthily slim. So, yeah. Uh, Zykovitz refers to how the Green Knight attracts the court of Arthur, responding to their yearning for adventure, yet immediately repels them through his grotesque display of his own severed head. Uh, says Zykovitz, he illustrates how the queer intrigues yet threatens, attracts but repels homosocial normativity. Um, it's basically that one Daniel Craig line in Knives Out. Like, it makes no damn sense. It compels me, though. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, so even before we get to Castle Hout Desert and the Game of Winnings, the Green Knight is a little gay. And Gawain's quest to find him has a little of the tone of a baby queer who saw a David Bowie outfit <laughs> and just has to find out more about what's going on with that. I see, I see. Um, so let's now talk about the hunting and seduction duality. Uh, so once Gawain reaches Castle Haltazert, we reach the second and primary gay phase in this story. Uh, I'm going to go back to Zykovitz for a quick summary of the ways in which this is gay. He describes how Bertilak, unlike his alter ego, the Green Knight, follows the cultural code of homosexuality and intimacy develops between Gawain and his host. Upon swearing to uphold their oaths to exchange their daily winnings, and the act of swearing and upholding oaths is a cornerstone of chivalric society, Gawain and Bertilak dallied and doffed all constraint, together with the courtly society, and finally the two friends, with compliments comely, kiss one another goodnight. So they kiss even before they've got this whole game going on? Correct. Okay, I didn't remember that. Mm. They kiss after the game as well. They just yeah. kiss, like, all the time. Yeah, so they don't actually need the game as an excuse. 
Mm-hmm. The erotically charged affection expressed between the two knights builds over the course of three days. Bertilak offers Gawain the rewards from his hunting, while Gawain bestows on Bertilak the kisses he receives from the Lady of the Manor. For instance, after the first day, Bertilak offers Gawain the deer he killed, and Gawain embraces his, Bertilak's, broad neck with both arms and confers on him a kiss in the comeliest style. And on the third day, in exchange for Bertilak's winnings, Gawain clasps Bertilak and kisses him thrice, as amiably and as earnestly as ever he could. I do appreciate in this story that, like, if this wasn't in the specific context of paralleling the fact that the lady comes and kisses Gawain and then Gawain basically passes those kisses on, I would have to be like, so, like, did men just kiss each other, like, socially at this time? Was that, like, specifically, like, erotic or romantic? Or was that just, like, a thing you do to your friends, like how Europeans kiss each other on the cheek? But because it's so heavily paralleled with, like, the lady gets into his bed and tries to seduce him and then kisses him, and then he goes and kisses the knights. Like, I don't have to worry about that question. I, I think that's still very relevant, though. We will get to that question. Mm-hmm. <laughs> to uphold his sworn oath, Gawain must bestow on Bertilak the kisses he has received from the lady, his winnings, in number and in kind. Thus, the male-male kisses replicate the eroticism that builds between Gawain and the lady during the three days. So that's pretty uncontroversially gay to a modern reader. Um, there are a couple of schools of thought as to how gay it is within the historical context and exactly what is intended by the queerness of this narrative. With Zykovitz claiming, in the chivalric culture of the poem, neither Gawain nor Bertilak is queer. Affection and embraces between late medieval noblemen, even erotically charged ones, are culturally normative. Uh, Sir Gawain and the Green Knight and other chivalric romances illustrates a wide range of homoeroticized moments that stop short of genital sex. Now, I think that's a little problematic on the face of it, uh, illustrating a pretty narrow perspective on what constitutes queer identity, namely sex. Mm -hmm. But Zygovitz is writing for American teachers in 2002, and he does seem to (laughs) make an explicit comparison between the way outsiders like the Green Knight are treated in fictional narratives and the way queers are treated in modern society, so I mostly forgive him. Okay, fair, fair. Carolyn Dinshaw, in her piece, A Kiss is Just a Kiss, Heterosexuality and Its Consolations in Sir Gawain and the Green Knight takes a slightly different approach, with her main argument being that the poem both produces the possibility of homosexual relations and renders them unintelligible. So she makes reference to the specifically binary nature of the Middle Ages articulated by the Canterbury Tales, and once again, I apologise for my middle English. (laughs) Okay. Says Dinshaw, They begin with an act of masculine penetration of the feminine. Uh, And then she quotes from the Canterbury Tales, When that April with his showers suit... The drought of March hath pierced to the root. Uh, April, March, summer, winter, male, female, active, passive, desire, inertia, um, fecundity, barrenness, generative, non-generative, sky, earth, spiritual, physical, knowledge, the unknown, outside, inside, public, private, health, and illness. A whole cultural paradigm structuring the seasons, the labor, the physical life, and the spiritual development of humans is set up. Male pierces female to the root. So within that society, Dinshaw refers to how male-male kisses can be innocent, such as when Arthur and his court kiss Gawain goodbye, but their placement in an erotically charged narrative moment here, and with direct comparison to how the lady hunts Gawain while her husband hunts game, is clearly different. And there were scholars such as Thomas Aquinas, who wrote in the 13th century of male-male kissing as coming from a wicked intention. (laughs) Uh, Peter Damien, who wrote in the 11th century of punishment for such acts, and the comprehensive and influential Penitential of Cuman from the 7th century, which regards kissing either simpliciter or in various degrees of erotic involvement among homosexual acts to be censured. So, you know, it's one thing to say, oh, well, kissing was normalized between men at the time. But I don't think that that's necessarily... Like, I think there's definitely some arguments to say that that's not true, really, even at all, and certainly in terms of the way that these kisses are placed within the narrative, there's a clear distinction between what's happening earlier in the story at Arthur's court and what happens with Bertilak and Gawain, I would say. Yeah, yeah, no, I think you're right. Like, I think even though we do see Arthur's court kisses Gawain goodbye or whatever, because it's in that very specific context that's really mirrored by the seduction of the wife and that kind of thing, it's obviously a different kind of kissing, I would say. I like Gail Ashton's summary of the dynamic between the two men best. Says Ashton, Gawain's relationship with Bertilak is, I suggest, at once homosocial, part of an attempt to reconstruct masculinity and potentially implicitly homosexual, an unsettling threat to social integrity. Bertilak's sexual temptation of him is highlighted by the feasting and sharing of wine, plus the chivalric pact. 
the exchange of winnings. Fleshly pleasure and a consensual exchange of chivalric promises enacted between men are thus conflated. So we've mentioned that they kiss each other before they start their weird (laughs) sex games. (laughs) And they also kiss each other at the end when their game's like done and Bert's like, come back to my house. And Gavin's like, I'm going home. Um, How do you, the two of you feel about those kisses as compared with the kisses that Gawain has with the other men at Camelot or whatnot. Are they also something different? Are they also queer? Or are these like, you know, kind of quote unquote actually gay kisses bookended by just like normal male kissing? Yeah, see I I tend to think that what you said at the end there is kind of how I interpret it. That they're kind of, you know, homosocial normalized kisses that bookend this kind of relationship that Gawain has. Like, one of the kind of interpretations of this story, which we'll kind of get into a little bit here, is that the idea is that, you know, Gawain is kind of tempted and part of the temptation is not only um, the temptation of adultery with the lady of the house, but also the temptation of Bertolac himself and kind of implicitly homosexuality. Mm. And so, you know, the first kiss is homosocial, that's kind of expected, but then, you know, this is kind of showing how that affection can, you know, potentially lead to something more, as we mm. kind of saw with those mm-hmm. quotes from Thomas Aquinas and the like earlier, um, and how that can be really negative. Um, you know, negative obviously being in the context here from their perspective. Mm. And then, you know, the kiss at the end is kind of Gawain having passed the test refusing homosexuality oh it sucks <laughs> yeah which is you know obviously like disappointing from a narrative yeah. perspective as a queer but i think kind of does provide a coherent explanation for why those two kisses are maybe less queer mm. than the uh ones that come between them so i didn't remember exactly the context of that kiss until i've just looked at it now in the book but my original thought going off what eli said about like is that basically a straight kiss book ending some gay kisses <laughs> is like that first kiss before they have their winning game i would be quite willing to say like yep that's just the acceptable homosocial kissing of the time and then they have this winning game where they do some maybe queerer kissing and then i would say it's quite hard to like once you go gay you can't yeah I'm gay yeah 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 it, back. it's quite hard to read it and be like oh yeah okay this kissing is queer and then accept that a final kiss can somehow just have dropped all those connotations so that's my general feeling on the final kiss i have like picked it up and read it now and noticed that it specifically says they clasped and kissed commending one another to the prince of paradise obviously jesus and the comments you just made jason about all the kind of writers you talked about condemning homosexuality are christian writers and like people like thomas aquinas are like very famous specifically for writing about christianity mm-hmm. and from a very christian perspective so including the prince of paradise in there makes me think it is less of a queer kiss but now i just don't know what to think yeah and i mean there's also an argument to say that particularly that first kiss may even still be queer because as we're kind of going to get into a little bit gawain kind of becomes a bit queered as soon as he arrives at the castle okay. um it's almost a bit of a like it's kind of a fantasy land like it's you know he's kind of crossed over into the unknown mm-hmm. and the eerie and the fantastical Mm. so yeah overall it was almost certainly not a simplistic truth of middle ages society that kisses between men were entirely normalized behavior uh and this interpretation of the interactions between gawain and the green knight uh is strengthened by the way gawain's masculinity is blurred and challenged by his position in the narrative which yes means it's gender time is he a woman because he sleeps in (laughs) a little bit yeah (laughs) um So, as I mentioned earlier, Gail Ashton argues that the archetypal figure of masculinity in the Middle Ages romance is an armoured one. This provides the capacity for a disarmoring scene to be a feminising one, with armour acting as a marker, then, of masculinity and its fundamental mutability. Such a disrobing happens once Gawain reaches Haudesert, where he is clothed in a chemise, skirt, and fur-lined cloak. As Ashton explains, though this is in accord with his status as an aristocratic male, it nevertheless places him in a passive, feminised position. This is furthered by the way that Gawain is excluded from the masculine pursuit of the hunt. Bertolac insists that Gawain stay in bed until late on three separate occasions. (laughs) An ideal life. (laughs) Rendering him indolent and vulnerable to seduction from both the lady and Bertolac himself, rather than joining the men in the traditional homosocial activity of the hunt. (laughs) That's maybe a little deep in the weeds, so let's talk about how the lady interacts with Gawain. 
The lady pursues Gawain in a clear reversal of courtly roles. She is constantly challenging Gawain to play the role of the knight, a romantic figure who would request of her a kiss if he were truly such a figure. Gawain is uncertain in this role, and therefore in his gendered identity within the story. That makes sense. I was quite confused by those scenes, and I think it's because I just hadn't picked up on that. I was kind of struggling to understand what the lady was saying to Gawain. Like, she was obviously saying to him, you're not, you know, demanding a kiss of me. I would expect that of you, given what I know about you as Gawain. I was struggling to understand that, because in my mind, I kind of thought, well, a chivalrous knight wouldn't demand a kiss of a woman. That would be... But obviously, I just didn't understand exactly what the expected role of that knight would be and that's what she's saying to Gawain is a chivalrous knight would demand and you're not demanding therefore I must demand I thought what was going on was that like she was demanding and because he was a chivalric knight like him denying a woman something she asked for was like oh yeah that makes sense that makes sense too yeah yeah it's yeah kind of a bit of both there's also the factor that the the kind of adulterous affair that is being proposed is kind of part of the chivalric tradition and those like that sort of mythology. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a very big aspect of a lot of those stories. So she's kind of like appealing to the tropes of the stories. Oh yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Um, I guess that comes back to what you were saying right at the start about how like Arthurian legends, like Arthur and his knights, are very sincere. But by the time the story was written, that's also kind of a model for satire, where like you know what the tropes are and you're going and reading it with those tropes, and she's kind of playing on that and almost speaking to the audience and saying, this is what should happen right now. Yeah, I think that's a pretty valid interpretation. So without his heterosexual knightly identity, Gawain is undone, and Dinshaw posits his disassembly to be echoed in the dismemberment of the deer hunted by the lord on day one. These kisses, the narrative consequence of the seduction exchange plot, push even further the poem's analysis of heterosexual identity arising from that plot. They suggest that solid hetero identity can be split apart without a cataclysmic dissolution. Gender, desire, and anatomy here are not, and don't have to be, unified, is uh, what Dinshaw says on this idea. This positioning of heterosexuality as threatened by both the wiles of femininity and the wildness of the Green Knight can potentially be seen in the context of the reign of Richard II where, as Dinshaw tells us, there were rumours suggested by Walsingham in his Historia Anglicana that the monarch's relationship with his very close friend and associate Robert de Vere, Earl of Oxford, was marked by obscene intimacy. So when was Richard II? Uh, during this time. Okay, so this was written during his reign. Yeah. Cool, cool, cool. So this is especially interesting given one of the theories of authorship for Gawain connects the author to the household of Richard II. So somebody in the king's house is writing a story being like, this is how easy it is to be seduced into being gay. And that's just really about the king. I guess in this theoretical world, Gawain represents Richard II. Yeah. And he is tempted, but ultimately, like, you know, is noble enough and is this, like, noble mind, right? Mm-hmm. So I guess that's kind of the implication. That Richard II is tempted by homosexuality, but he's not. He's yeah. going to turn it down. Or at least that, like, that's what a noble person should do in that circumstance, maybe. This is the major thrust of Dinshaw's piece, connecting her interpretation of the text as one which ultimately seeks to affirm heterosexuality in the face of great challenge to the societal context into which it was written. Uh, For example, she also refers to the late medieval English customs of primogeniture and inheritance encouraged by guaranteeing the financing of the marriage of first sons, uh, and how that system left younger sons to shift for themselves. Shift? That's a weird choice of words, but that is what she said. <laughs> so is primogeniture the, the thing where the older son inherits everything? Yes. Okay, yeah. So there's a lot of young men around who are just kind of like, I don't know what to do, guess I'll be gay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to simplify greatly. <laughs> yeah, she suggests that these customs, setting young men adrift, may have in turn provoked anxiety about her homosexual relations. To a culture of heteronormativity, homosexual acts involving no women and by nature non-procreative may have appeared particularly likely in a situation where there were hordes of young men with relatively limited means. I think that also fits in with how when the Green Knight comes in and he's like, hey, who's going to cut off my head? And Arthur's like, I'll do it. Gawain steps in and he's like, no, you're the king. I'm just a guy. No one cares about me. I'm not important. I'll do it because it won't matter if I get killed. That does position him as one of these kind of young men in society who's just like, I'm around. I don't have a specific role. I'm just kind of here. I'm related to some important people. Yeah. As Dinshaw says, Sir Gawain and the Green Knight depicts an ideal feudal society, the round table in its youth, 
that however imminent homosexual relations might be, uh, imminent here being I-M-M-A-N-E-N-T, and by which she really means inherent, kept young men unmarried yet still heterosexually focused. So she's kind of saying that, you know, the the court of Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table is this environment you would expect to be gay, but actually it's not. (laughs) So I've never really thought about this. Like, obviously Arthur is married to Guinevere, but are most of the Knights of the Round Table single, unmarried? Is that what's going on with the round well, table? Well, Lancelot's also sleeping with Guinevere. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And Lancelot is not married. Is he? He's just sleeping with Guinevere, right? Well, he's certainly not also married to Guinevere. So. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Maybe he was married to someone else we just didn't know about. And, like, Gawain's obviously not married. Is that just the general vibe? It's, like, Arthur and his wife and just a bunch of single guys? Um, yeah, so obviously I can't answer specific questions about Gawain and Lancelot, etc. Because yeah. uh, there's no single canon for yeah, how yeah, these characters yeah. are. And there's a somewhat, like, a progression of stories in this regard. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I think that is generally the idea is there's a lot of young men who flock to Arthur's court for adventure because that's kind of how you seek your fame and fortune. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so what Dinshaw is, I think, kind of suggesting here is that that's somewhat paralleled by like a bunch of young unmarried men seeking out like large cities in search of some kind of fortune since they can't get anything from their families. Yeah. So why isn't that gay? Did you say she says you think would think that gay that's gay, but it's not gay? Well, no, I don't think Dinshaw is saying that it's not gay. She's saying that what this poem is positing is that the court of Arthur and therefore the society in which the poem is written is is not gay, even though you might expect it to be. Okay, so this poem is kind of here to reassure you that even though you're in this very homosocial environment where you could easily be seduced by all these men, don't worry if you, like, you know, follow the code you're meant to follow and so forth. You will get out of this without being gay. Is that what's happening here? Yeah. Okay. Like, that's somewhat my interpretation, at least, of what Dinshaw is kind of interpreting the poem as. So that's it for my discussion of the ways in which Gawain's character is queered in the narrative and why the story may have presented him in this fashion. But we are not quite done with the queerness of the story overall. Uh, as I have a small note for any Morgan Le Fay slash Guinevere shippers in the audience. <laughs> I'm really intrigued by this because, like, obviously Morgan Le Fay is there and there's kind of the thing at the end where the Green Knight is like, yep, Morgan Le Fay set this up. She made me into this green dude. But I really just didn't really think about Guinevere much at all in this story. And I'm keen to hear what her deal is. Yeah, so I want to touch on the presence of the sorceress Morgan Le Fay in the story and the way the entire setup of the story is Morgan trying to get at Lady Guinevere. Uh, Says Ashton, we might consider the almost completely buried detail of Morgan's gambit as another unsettling of normative sexual identity, a desire of one woman for another, motivating the entire plot that the heterosexualizing narrative wishes not to have to acknowledge. Because fundamentally, that is the premise of the story. And, you know, interestingly, we kind of see in the way the story is written, Gawain's genealogy is traced via the female line and a web of connections in which Morgan is central. We're told she is his aunt, Arthur's half-sister, and daughter of the Duchess of Tintagel. Um, Feminine influence is asserted, and, you know, Gawain is placed next to Guinevere um, at the start of the story, and that's no Mm -hmm. accident, because Gawain is kind of Guinevere's actor in the story. Okay. And obviously the Green Knight represents Morgan's actor. Yeah. And like very explicitly it's like, yeah, Morgan put me up to this, basically. Yeah. Yeah. So this argument that the entire plot centers on Morgan reaching out to Guinevere um, with, you know, the Lord and Lady Houtdesert and Gawain as kind of conduits for their struggle kind of makes the dynamic between the two women an erotic one. So what exactly is the background of Guinevere and Morgan? Because I feel like it was very briefly touched on in the poem, but because it came in so briefly at the end, I didn't really fully grasp what their backstory is. And you mentioned it's to do with Lancelot seducing Guinevere. But what exactly is going on here between Morgan and Guinevere? Yeah, so Morgan is Arthur's sister. Yeah. And she is in love with Lancelot, basically. Okay, right. And then, so when Guinevere not only is cheating on Arthur with Lancelot, but Mm. also Lancelot is the person she's obsessed with. And, you know, in many of the stories of Arthurian legend, uh, Morgan kidnaps Lancelot and is attempting to seduce him and, you know, tries to, like, screw with his mind and that Mm -hmm. kind of thing. So, yeah, and, and this is kind of the source of her being exiled from the court. Like, originally she is kind of closely associated with Arthur and is kind of on the side of good. And it's only later that she becomes an antagonist. 
Mm-hmm. Um, this is actually something I didn't realize was that like she's trained by Merlin. Yeah. But in those original myths, like Merlin is not always like Merlin is kind of an antagonist as well in a lot of okay. these stories. And Merlin and Morgan also in a lot of these stories are a couple. So yeah, there's a lot going on. <laughs> Yeah, that was kind of the context that I knew about her in. Like, I knew about her being Arthur's sister who was trained by Merlin and maybe in a relationship with Merlin. Then I was just like, I didn't know about all the Lancelot stuff. So I was like, what's going on here? Um, This is something you see in a lot of, like, mythology as it develops over time. I know I was reading about this recently with, like, Norse mythology and Mm -hmm. how, like, Odin became the head of the pantheon as opposed to Tyr. And the changes that entailed to, for example, Loki Mm -hmm. um, and how Loki took took on a lot of... Uh, Odin's darker aspects. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. So similarly, I think that's kind of a little bit what happened here is that, like, Lancelot originally is this kind of, you know, just kind of Arthur's right-hand man and then mm-hmm. later on becomes this more complicated figure because of this treachery and that also results in Morgan becoming a darker figure. Yeah. So, yeah, it is just kind of the thing where we're talking about several hundred years of storytelling and so there's some plot development but it's not consistent because there's no one canon. It's, mm. it's not being run by Disney. <laughs> <laughs> and the people like reading this poem would obviously have I guess we don't necessarily know what background on Morgan they would have had, but they would have definitely had some of this background on Morgan. Yeah. And they wouldn't have just been like me being like, Oh, Morgan's here, who is she? What's going on? They would have been like, Oh yeah, okay, I see how this all ties in now. Mm-hmm. So yeah, this kind of like interesting, somewhat erotic dynamic between Guinevere and Morgan that is kind of implied by their actors being in an erotic dynamic mm-hmm. is not something I have a lot more to say about, but it was the one queer thing I didn't really expect to find when reading about this story, so I just wanted to bring it up. Yeah, no, I wouldn't have thought of that as being queer, but now that you've pointed it out in that way, like, yeah, that is another layer of queerness. I guess. <laughs> that feels like a massive reach to me to call that queer. It's like, Morgan hates Guinevere, so sends this weird guy after her, and then Guinevere sends her guy out. And those guys happen to, like, like two, like, rival spies go rogue and fall in love. <laughs> Morgan and Guinevere still don't like each other. <laughs> I guess that's true. I guess that's true, yeah. Oh, yeah, this is absolutely the most, like, out there Like, this is just it. academic tomfoolery. <laughs> <laughs> That's that's a fair reaction. I, I feel like you know I I I'm sure that there's like worth to this if I like read the proper thing. But I feel like when you get to that that kind of analysis, it's kind of like so anytime like two women interact with each other, there's a level on which this is gay. <laughs> is that what you're telling me? Because <laughs> I just kind of don't think that's true. Mm, mm. Yeah, yeah, obviously, right? And like you know, I do think yeah, ascribing intentionality to the author in this specific regard in terms of that being a queer dynamic is you know certainly a massive stretch it is interesting more generally and more likely to be relevant to how this was actually written in the academia there's kind of a like is it feminist is it Mm -hmm, mm anti-feminist um arguments about this text where like on the one hand you can say well the actors who have agency in the story and who are the ones who make it happen are in fact Guinevere and Morgan like they're the ones who are underpinning the kind of conflict Mm. but on the other hand obviously like the the two major characters are men (laughs) and as Ashton points out like it is a buried detail like it's not something that's I think even to readers at the time it's not necessarily like clear in terms of the narrative that that's exactly what's going on. Mm, I also think the idea that the like people with agency behind the scenes making it happen are women I would not call a feminist idea because there's I don't know how much this trope existed at the time but in more recent storytelling there's definitely like a trope of a woman like as a, a schemer yeah. Like mm-hmm. yeah 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 like I'm, I guess you see it most often in the context of perhaps like a mother of a king or something like that mm. manipulating him and that kind of thing so I wouldn't consider that feminist because of that trope sure yeah and obviously that trope did exist at the time because we're literally talking about Morgan who is a sorceress yeah you know who yeah. manipulates two people to get what she wants like yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> and this is always made explicit in the text as well because Gawain has his weird like anti-feminist rant about how the lady I don't know manipulated him into making out with her or whatever mm-hmm. um that he goes on right at the end out of nowhere that yeah no one yeah. asked him to say <laughs> Yeah, so he yeah. even uh, he brings up other examples of women manipulating men. Oh, um, yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah. He goes into all this, like, uh, Bible stuff. And yeah. It's like, chill out, dude. <laughs> <laughs> what exactly are we meant to understand about the lady and her 
motivations like is she in cahoots with the green knight in yeah. this seducing gawain plan or did she just seduce gawain and then i thought there'd be like a reveal about this yeah and it only has just now occurred to me that there isn't one yeah, yeah what I, is her deal i kind of just assumed they're in cahoots and then i was now just like wait a second though like are they or is she just like a seductress who's just here in the story like what's going on no i think they are definitely in cahoots okay um, both in terms of like you know independently just reading the story obviously the fact that bertalak is like hey sleep in make sure you sleep in and <laughs> stay that, in the bed <laughs> and says that every time and you know the lady mm. comes to him in the morning while he's in mm. bed that's true is like an obvious contextual reason why they're in cahoots but also more seriously from a like analysis perspective you know part of what morgan lefay's plan is in this story is to kind of break the chivalry of arthur's court Mm-hmm. And part of that is to, and, you know, obviously given the other context I gave you about her whole deal being about the adultery of Lancelot, you know, oh, kind yeah. of part of what she does is try and make the Knights of the Round Table commit adultery. And, That's very funny. Yeah. <laughs> and so, yeah, definitely, like, the Lady and the Lord are kind of in cahoots, and they're both kind of really just conduits for Morgan Le Fay's mm. desires. I guess um, the other contextual clue for the lady being in on it is that the lady is paired with the older woman who we don't yet know is Morgan mm, Le Fay. Mm, mm-hmm, so. That's true. We do always see them together. Yeah. 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 And it talks about how, like, you know, the Lord treats them um, with equal honor and Gawain treats them with equal honor, mm. and, you know. Yeah. So how much of this is in, like, the BBC Merlin show? <laughs> <laughs> I have never watched BBC Merlin. <laughs> Yeah, maybe when the movie comes out, we can talk about BBC Mel. <laughs> it is BBC, isn't it? Yeah, 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 yeah. I understand that that doesn't really make sense because Arthur's like young in that show; like he's not yet, you know, in mm. in the stage of his life that he's in in this story. But like, I also assume that that story did literally whatever it wanted with this mythology, and also yeah. probably ran out of ideas. So I wouldn't be that surprised if Gawain was there at some point. Yeah, yeah. maybe yeah. in the Green Knight. Yeah. Like, that'd be a cool antagonist and, like, not that hard to do with your makeup budget. Like, <laughs> yeah. just paint him green. Just paint him green. <laughs> yeah. So is there anything else you guys wanted to talk about before we wrap up? So we talked about why is the Green Knight green? Mm-hmm. And one of the questions I did have is, hey, what's with all the green in this? But a more pressing question I had is, what's with all the red in this? Mm-hmm. So there is so much red in this. Everything is red. There's just as much red stuff as green. <laughs> and I would like us to either, Jason, you to explain to me what that's about, or for us all to just kind of spitball about it for a bit. <laughs> either way, I will explain some red stuff. Mm-hmm. So this first became apparent to me in the first scene that the Green Knight is there, because he's all green, his clothes are green, he is green, his beard is green, he's a green boy. And then it mentions he's got red eyes. And I made note of that because I was going to make a joke about how he's a tacky Christmas boy. <laughs> he is a tacky Christmas boy. He is a tacky boy. Christmas boy. Then his head gets cut off, so he's bleeding. And I think, Alice, you said in yours it specifies the blood is red. In mine yeah. it didn't specify, but it didn't say the blood is green, so I'm presuming the blood is red. So he really is just like red and green. And then there just keeps being red stuff throughout Mm-hmm. the poem notably the lord at the castle who we do not yet know is the green knight is more defined by being red which mm-hmm. i thought was an interesting counterpoint to his other identity as being green <laughs> uh and then there's all sorts of just little like red pieces of clothing uh i think gwen either has like a red coat or a red shield or something his shield's like definitely that red, yeah there's that whole thing where he brings back the fox and the fox is obviously red i guess there are those blue foxes in falling wood i don't know if they're real um, <laughs> i was like blue foxes where on earth are you going with that? <laughs> you know like blue is in like the way that like dogs can be blue yeah, yeah it's yeah, actually yeah. like gray yeah um and then also notice notably the lady offers him when she and gawain have had their like third little tryst thing uh and she's offering gawain some like token he she offers him a red gold ring and he refuses it and so instead she gives him a green girdle Mm. Uh, which is just obviously some color symbolism. And then he puts that green girdle on over his like red item of clothing. And it was just very apparent, but I don't know what it means. I'm really sorry, but I don't actually have an answer for that. Uh, There wasn't anything in any of the pieces I read about what the red meant. Maybe because that's just so obvious to scholars in the field. (laughs) So I'm sure someone knows. But yeah, I I will add that also I believe the uh, not only is the Lord defined by being kind of like red in 
like ruddy skin but also like i think specifically has red hair oh, um yeah i i don't know if this is a translation thing as well like mine made a point of being like yeah the lord is red like in the footnotes mm. and the examples it gave of like descriptions of him that denote redness are fierce as fire and then also beaver huge and i was like what does that mean i guess that does mean like ginger so i don't know what red would have symbolized to an english person at the time because i don't know how they understood color symbolism but like every example you've given especially starting off with the green knight and the fact that he's green and has red eyes seems to just be contrasting the green and the red and like the red seems to be like Gawain as a knight is wearing red when the green knight is in his non-green knight form as the lord. He's red. Jason talked at the start about kind of the duality of the green knight and how he's green, which is like wild and outsider-ish, but he's also a knight. I guess that ties in with how he's green, but he has red eyes. I don't know. To me, the redness generally seems to symbolize more like chivalry, knight, society than the greenness being more wild and perhaps in the context of the girdle more like magic magical or moving away from that chivalry because it's when he accepts the girdle but doesn't tell the knight that Gawain has like broken his promise and I guess conversely assuming the red gold ring is not magical which like we don't have any information suggesting is magical if he'd accepted the ring we could assume that he probably would have passed it on to the lord and it would not be breaking that code of chivalry I don't know that but that's my theory of how that would have happened yeah yeah i think that's that's pretty accurate because yeah like gawain only accepts the girdle because it's supposedly going to protect him yeah you know i hadn't really thought about the amount of red uh in the story but um yeah i think generally it seems like red is kind of connoted with civilization coming back to his red eyes specifically in mine it says the rider wrenched himself round in his saddle and rolled his red eyes about roughly and strangely, and the translators noted that the red eyes are a common feature of angry churls in medieval poetry. So what's a churl? Because that word came up a fair bit in the translation I read, and I didn't know the answer. In this context, a churl is just a peasant. Okay. okay. Obviously, the word churlish now comes to mean a rude and mean-spirited person. Yeah. But there are references in this text to a churl mm. that aren't, like, negatively connotated. Okay. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So your translator was saying that angry, that red eyes was linked to just angry peasants. Yeah, I guess basically, which is like continued to be the same today in <laughs> a very different way, I guess. But um, <laughs> yeah, which I feel like doesn't like fully contradict what you're saying, but I do mm. think it's more complicated than just like green is effectively a sort of negative color of the like anti-values that mm, we have mm. and red is like the good color yeah, uh, yeah i think it's more complicated and i also think the ways that they get layered on the one person mm. are really really interesting as well like this night being green with red eyes and then gawain by the end having like layers of red and green that he's wearing uh, yeah. even if we like understand those items of clothing fairly simply uh like separately on him i think layering them is interesting especially when you consider that like the poem ends with all the knights in arthur's court deciding to wear that green girdle too yeah so maybe yeah. it's a little okay to be gay <laughs> Yeah, that's actually one interpretation that I wasn't going to bring up, but um, I think is relevant here, Yeah, uh, is some people have interpreted this as a kind of uh, a fall narrative. Mm. Uh, the idea that Arthur's court has is kind of in its advanced stages and is, you know, like the Roman Empire, ready to fall. Um, mm-hmm. And a sign of that is the way that Arthur's knights respond to Gawain's return. And how instead of Mm. accepting Gawain's shame at, you know, the girdle that he now wears as a mark of shame, they laugh about it and accept it into their custom and it becomes a mark of kind of pride and fun amongst them. Oh, so I thought we'd figured out a way to make this like end on a kind of a fun like no it's it's pro-gay. No, okay, fine. That's not a problem as well. Um, yeah, but, you know, like, I guess within the story, uh, Arthur's Court are like, hell yeah, it's okay to be a little bit gay, but, um, the author's like, "Mm -mm -mm, this is a sign that things are going awry. Yeah, yeah, but, but, like, Lancelot's like, who hasn't had gay thoughts? (laughs) (laughs) I wonder if throughout history, since, like, this poem was written, people have ever worn the green girdle with, like, that symbolism in mind. Yeah, I wonder. That, Mm. That is really interesting. 
Yeah. Um, like, I've never heard of that as a gay symbol. I'm just musing. It is very funny. In, I think, the Wikipedia article description of this plot, they don't call it a girdle. They call it, like, a sash, I think. Oh, and yeah. I'm just like, that is an absolutely cowardly choice. Because, <laughs> like, 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 the fact that it's a girdle is an important thing because it's a feminine symbol. Yeah, and it's specifically talked about being quite lacy, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I also thought the, like, fox being red, which is something, like, not only is he hunting a fox, but also specifically is, like, and that was a that fox was red is <laughs> um, also interesting because my translator notes that um, fox hunting is a lot rarer than hunting deer or boar, mm. which are the other things that he hunts. And it's viewed as like less noble. And mm. I don't know. I just thought that was an interesting thing for his, like, yeah. cause you kind of expect potentially for the hunting to like go up to a crescendo. And I think it being like deer and then boar did seem like it was doing that, but then it doesn't do like, <laughs> like bear or <laughs> I don't know where you go from boar. It goes to fox, which is red and also like not manly. I was thinking when they were hunting the fox, like the other two, like deer and boar, you hunt them, you eat them. Like you bring them back. And it's like, I got you this meat. Like, and Gawain's going to be like, yeah, I'm going to eat all this meat. Like you can't really eat a fox. It's very small. You can't be like, yeah, Gawain, I got you this feast. Like, so that's something I haven't gone into too much. Uh, in this analysis <laughs> is the kind of uh, academic analysis of what exactly the hunts mean, because some people get really into that. Mm, about, like, specifically comparing, like, I, I noted earlier the comparison between the dismemberment of the deer and the kind of disassembly of Gawain's masculinity. Mm. Um, people get really into, like, comparing each hunt, like, line by line with each oh. uh, seduction scene. How convincingly, would you say? Uh, not super convincingly, which okay. is why I haven't talked about it too <laughs> yeah. much. Fair, fair, fair. Um, one of the things that I think probably is intended, and the reason why you see the fox, and you guys have noted that that's a bit weird coming after the deer and the boar, is that the fox is kind of wily and almost mm. escapes. Oh, yeah. And in the same way, Gawain almost escapes the clutches of the lady without accepting anything from her beyond a kiss, mm. but doesn't quite, and that's how he ends up with the girl. Oh, yeah. Okay, that's good. That's good. And so, yeah, I think that is probably a fairly a reasonable interpretation as opposed to some of the more, like, nitty-gritty mm. stuff. Yeah. There's so much colour going on here. <laughs> um, there's also, like, the one time, like, again, the translator, like, there's, like, this one time where he wears, like, a blue coat. It's when, I think it's when Gawain's giving the lord, like, the three kisses and being like, no, that's totes everything. And blue is meant to be representative of, like, faithfulness at the time. Oh. So it's just kind of ironic, like, he wears this uh, colour that symbolises how, like, faithful and true he is, but it's this one moment where he is... Like, he's fallen, he's being deceptive now. Hmm. And I was just hmm. like, colours. <laughs> well, I know in, like, medieval heraldry, like, when you look at, like, the shields and stuff, all the colours do have really specific meanings. And, like, I haven't looked that up, but I wonder how that would tie in. Hmm. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's a um, pretty good note, I think, maybe to end on, um, in terms of there is a lot of stuff going on with this story that I could have investigated more but wasn't, like, specifically related to the queerness. And I'm sure, yeah, again, if you were writing, like, a PhD or, like, a full book about this story, uh, you could probably go into every aspect of it and, and tie that back in. In the end, that kind of brings us to our conclusion. I want to go back to Dinshaw for this. While she concludes by telling us that neither the story nor its community are necessarily open to queer identities, uh, she adds something that I thought was uh, quite a good quote. But we have a much clearer prospect. When we read the lips of Gawain and Bertilak, we read that text from a new perspective and contribute to a more accurate history, one we need. A history of the production of heterosexuality in Western Christendom via the containment of the deviant, and the concomitant history of various strategies deployed to resist that containment. In this discussion of Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, or Seggek, <laughs> such resistance is enacted in the practice of reading in constantly querying the text. When, after all, is a kiss ever just a kiss? Which I just thought was kind of neat. Uh, so with that, we've been Queer as Fact. I'm Jason. I'm Alice. And I'm Eli. And if you've enjoyed this episode, you can check out Queer as Fact on Spotify, Podbean, Apple Podcasts, or wherever good podcasts are found. You can also follow us on social media. We are on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook as Queer as Fact. If you'd like to support this podcast financially, we have a Redbubble store where you can purchase merchandise such as Queer as Fact shirts and mugs, and a Patreon where you can enjoy perks such as voting on episode topics and access to our monthly newsletter. All of this information can be found on our website, queerasfact.com, alongside source posts if you'd like to read more about our episode topics. Queer as Fact will return on the 1st of September, when we will be discussing something. Uh, unfortunately, we are back in lockdown and once more unable to record with Irene, so our schedule is a little bit in flux. Thank you very much for listening, and we'll see you next time.